Welcome to the latest ATP Tennis Radio podcast and we are at Wimbledon. Hello, I'm Chris Bowers. I'm on the top of the broadcast centre at the end of week one and I'm delighted to be joined by Jill Krabus, former fourth round player here. And uh, you must have very good memories of this place. Did you get that good feeling every time you walk back through the gate? Every single time. I, I Thank you, Chris. I love being here. It's so great to be back um, here at Wimbledon, especially after having a year off, you know, and missing it last year. That was really difficult, but it's so nice to be back. And even just walking through the grounds before the tournament even starts, it's just beautiful. You just breathe in the fresh air. You see the gr- green grass. I just, it's, it's a joy every time. Well, Roger Federer has learned a new English phrase this week. He was asked after one of his uh, early matches on in his on-court interview, does absence make the heart grow fonder? And he didn't know the phrase, but he does know. He didn't know the phrase. He didn't oh, even know the phrase. Wow. He said, I'm sorry, my English isn't very good. Oh my God, I don't believe that. <laughs> he did say that. <laughs> okay. But uh, it's, I suppose it's idiomatic English, isn't it? It's a phrase. Yes. But, uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, we have missed it. We missed it last year, but it's great to see that the place looking very good. Obviously, one of the themes of the past week has been that a number of players have slipped on the grass. Is that just because they've forgotten how to move on the stuff? No, I don't think so. You know, it, there's been a constant talk about it. And I think the thing is, um, it's been a really wet summer from what I've heard. And I think that's a huge factor. And so some of these matches have been played under the roofs. And we had, we actually, on I'm here for the Wimbledon radio channel. And we had the head uh, horticulturist on. And he was explaining that when the roofs are closed, it kind of traps the moisture, becomes kind of like a greenhouse. And he was saying, you know, the, it makes it a little bit more humid. And so that could have been a factor because it's not as slippery on the outside courts but I think as it's been such a cold wet summer you know we haven't had that sun beating down on the courts to dry out the court so it's just been a little bit tricky I think for the uh, trickier for the players yeah you're absolutely right to mention the uh, head horticulturalist he's also the groundsman yes <laughs> yes looks after the grass and the petunias it's a great job I suppose also there's a buzz around a Grand Slam tournament when the home nation does well and uh, uh, the British have done particularly well. Murray, Evans and Norrie, they all won a couple of matches. Uh, Raju Kano was the breakthrough player, 18-year-old in the women's event. Do you get that sense of a buzz? Did you get it when you were at the US Open and the Americans were doing well? Do you sense it in Melbourne, in Paris, in, in London? Absolutely. I mean, you do sense it everywhere. And it's just it's just exciting. I think also um, being an American player and seeing my compatriots do well in their home country too. I mean, it kind of brings you all together even more when you're in home country, which is so exciting. And it kind of brings you all together. You root for each other. But I have to say, even even when I'm here and, you know, seeing Evans and Raducanu and Nori and I mean, it's just and, and Murray back and so great to see him back. It gets me involved within this home nation, too. Like it gets me rooting for all the British players as well. So you kind of just like you kind of get so absorbed in it. And it's just such an unbelievable atmosphere. Well, we'll come back to Murray's defeat later in the show, but uh... I know the British were very disappointed that Dan Evans lost in four sets to Peter Corder's son, Sebastian Corder, in the third round. And yet, Corder's been one of these players who's been marked for a long time. He seems to be making very rapid progress. Yeah, I mean, you know what? He, I think he's pretty exceptional. I had only watched him previously play on television, so it was the first time I saw him play live against Dan Evans. And honestly, before the match, I was edging towards Dan Evans. I thought Dan was going to win that match just because I spoke to him earlier this year, and he was talking about how much he worked hard in the off season, how much confidence he was growing in himself. And so I think just that energy that he was bringing, I was like, oh, I can see him, you know, edging 
over Corda in that. But I, I was super impressed with Sebastian Corda. I think just for such a tall guy, six foot five, I mean, the, the, the way he glides around the court and he has all the tools, not afraid to come forward, not afraid to come into the net, but just a very smooth player. So I was, I think he's going to be a Grand Slam champion in the future. And so cool. So yeah, marketable. Yeah, calm. I mean, the way he did yeah. his interviews are amazing. Now, how was that? Is it not bad? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he's, I don't know. He just exudes that energy and that demeanor. And yeah, I think just the way he carries himself on the court, just very professional. It's got a great attitude. He's just really a good a joy to watch. I suppose coming from a family where your dad's a Grand Slam champion, your mother was top right. 30, uh, your sister is the world number one in golf. Just go on and on. The other sister has won already six LPGTA titles as well. I mean, and he's and, and Sebastian's talked about that, how much, you know, they feed off each other. He said they're a very competitive family. He said he was super excited when his sister won, uh, won the title and became number one in the world. And he just says, you know, they, they kind of feed off that energy and that competitiveness within the family. Before we get into the interviews, just have to... Uh raise the subject of Novak Djokovic. I was speaking to a Serbian television journalist earlier this week after he was slipping a fair bit on the grass and he said, you know, that's the biggest uh, threat to him. It's not any opponent. It's the grass. He does seem an overwhelming favourite. He does. He, I think he is the overwhelming favorite. I think everyone's sort of thinking if he wasn't in the draw, then who would it be? <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, it's interesting because I, I was watching him slip a little bit and I, I think it would be him that's only his worst enemy if he were to lose, I think. But watching him, the highlights of watching him fall and the, they have the slow motion footage of watching him fall. He actually falls in a way where he's almost like figured out not how to hurt himself. Like, I mean, he kind of like goes with the fall where most of the time your first reaction is to try and stop yourself or, you know, put your hand down to try and stop your body momentum. And he sort of kind of just flows with it. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, it's almost like he thinks of everything to do in the most professional way. And, and that's why he's the best. I can see a book there, The Art of Falling. Yeah, exactly. Djokovic. <laughs> there you go, Chris. <laughs> right, okay, let's uh, focus on Roger Federer, who was back this week, and uh, uh, one man who knows Federer very well is Rene Stauffer. Rene is the long-standing tennis correspondent of the Tagesanzeiger newspaper of Zurich, although in this uh, multimedia age he also reports for another dozen or so titles owned by the Tagesanzeiger group. Now, like me, Rene has written a biography of Roger Federer. Rene's is available in English under the name Roger Federer, the biography, and I asked him if Federer would have been as marketable if he hadn't controlled his temper from that fiery youngster that everyone likes to refer to. That's a very good question, and I'm pretty sure you're right because now he's the the clean guy, he's the honest guy, he's the respected one, he's a very uh, friendly to everyone. Uh, he doesn't have a, he, he's a good role model and and that's why basically everybody can take him as an ambassador. To what extent is he a hero in Switzerland given that Switzerland is a country which doesn't generally go in for hero worship? That's right. We don't have uh, the cult, the hero cult and uh, the worship of the big stars. But w we can say that Roger is in a league of, of its own. He, we never had somebody like him respected from everybody, known from everybody. And uh, if, if there are some people criticizing him, which they sometimes like to do on social media and stuff just to get attention, then you can see the... They, everybody jumps on them, and uh, it's just not—it's uh, just not fair. Uh, everybody knows it. 
And also, I mean, Roger has uh, earned all the honors that Switzerland can give, like the titles and the awards and stuff. I remember Roger Brenwald, the man behind the Basel tournament, saying only in Switzerland could Roger still have a house because the Swiss do not accost him in the street. They let him have his private life. They might notice him and they might want an autograph or a photograph. But by and large, they leave him to himself. Is that a fair assessment? That's a very fair assessment. It's one that Roger himself does. He said that uh, it's people respect me, people leave me alone, people uh, they uh, don't get uh, too close to me. It's also uh, you know nice and uh, nice and relaxed in Switzerland. Uh, maybe you saw the ad with uh, Robert De Niro who said I don't want to come to Switzerland. It's too boring. It's too perfect. And uh, Roger is an ambassador for Swiss tourism now. So. Uh, He is available in Switzerland. You can meet him on the street. You can see him uh, in a skiing resort, in the public restaurant. You can see him in the public swimming pool. Uh, and he's approachable. You can go to him and talk to him, but Swiss don't do that. So when he's in Switzerland, I mean, d does he get harassed by foreign people or does he have a hologram to, re to represent him when, uh, when he's away playing tournaments? <laughs> I don't think so. I, don't, I think that most of the people, they are just uh, not ready to approach him since they maybe never expect to see him and then the, the chance is gone. So basically, Roger has a quite, pretty quiet life in Switzerland. So people realize afterwards, oh my God, that was Roger Federer. Absolutely. Do you think Switzerland is prepared for the fact that he is unlikely to be playing tennis in the next couple of years because he must be close to retirement now? Yeah, that's true. That's uh, one of the things that uh, we still uh, have to see how how his presence is going to change. He's, he's omnipresent, as you mentioned before, with all the advertising and all the, all the products that he endorses. So we don't, uh, uh, we're not afraid that Roger might disappear from one day to the other. Uh, it's, it remains to be seen how, which uh, direction he's, uh, he's going to, to work or to put his priorities. Can you compare Federer to anybody else like Becker in Germany or like, I suppose, someone from a different sport, uh, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo or a Lionel Messi in football. Have you seen enough of how those um, athletes have been treated in Germany, in Portugal, in, uh, uh, in Spain to know just how different it is for Federer compared to others? Yeah, I have a, I have an idea. I was once uh, with uh, Roger in uh, Brazil, where he did his South American tour. I was there in, in uh, Sao Paulo, and there I could feel how the fans reacted to him. That was, that was completely different than he usually gets treated. People waiting until after midnight and screaming and shouting his name and dancing around him and. Uh, This is uh, more like a, a, a soccer or a football uh, uh, ambiente, but Roger usually doesn't doesn't find that. It's it's another world. It's a more it's sophisticated world, and he just adjusts to it depending on the level of enthusiasm of the people he's dealing with. I would say so. He's uh, absolutely uh, ready for everything, and and he he always uh, keeps uh, a clear head. Even if the world around him goes uh, crazy, 
that makes him uh, that makes him strong also i mean this is one of the qualities he has on the tennis court it just uh, keeps clear clear in his head uh, at least most of the time talking about qualities on a tennis court over the past week a lot of talk has been given to the grass at Wimbledon being more slippery and Federer he slipped once or twice but not very often do you think that he actually has an ability to move on grass that is underappreciated and that we're seeing this week because he is more sure-footed than many other players yeah I think this is one uh, one aspect that usually you don't talk about but uh, Roger he himself he said that in the first round you have to be so careful he's aware of his movement, meaning, already in the second round, he he did a, uh, he he got more liberated and and he feels all the details of the of the grass, of the weather, of the Wimbledon. That's his uh, home turf, and this is really all these details. You don't talk about it, but they are important for him. And when he finally gives up, how is that going to change your life as a Swiss tennis journalist? Well, I am in the position that uh, I don't have to work much longer, which uh, which uh, is good because what can you do after covering uh, Roger Federer's career for uh, 25 years? Uh, of course, I still like tennis. We have some young guys coming up. We have the French uh, Open junior champion, uh, uh, Dominic Stricker, who could become a good player. We have uh, Belinda Bencic, of course, and stuff. But... After Federer, and when when you're in my age, then you just don't uh, you just don't get too excited anymore. That was the Swiss tennis journalist René Stauffer. Jill Rogers at 39. You played until you were 39. Uh, very much sort of a younger age than perhaps we thought of it when Ken Rosewall got to the final here in 1974 at 39. What do you have to do that differently to earlier in your career to keep yourself going for that much longer? You know, you know, it's the, I think the toughest thing for me as I got older was, you know, that just consistently having that mental intensity through, through your later years as well, because you've put so much energy as a youngster coming in. And that and on the other hand, the, the energy comes more naturally when you're young because you're just more hungry. Um, and I think just to have that consistent hunger for so long um, throughout your entire career and also at 39, like I started playing players that were 16, 17 years old. And for me, I was kind of like, it just kind of felt weird, like playing someone so young. Cause I was like, oh my gosh, I could be their mother really. And, it, and that just started feeling a little bit strange. Um, but I, I still had that, I still had that motivation and hunger. It was just what got to me in the end, I think, um, was mentally like continuing to want to compete at that high level over and over again. And that, and it was a weird feeling cause that was something I always always loved so much was the competitiveness and that what impre- that's what impresses me so much about Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, um, you know, these players playing later into their 30s is they've played so long already and to still come out with so much motivation and so much fire even after having so many titles. That is to me is incredible. But you see the competitive instinct I see in someone like Nadal and Djokovic right. with Federer. It looks to me like he's doing a crossword or he's playing chess. It's just a, a puzzle to be solved. Well, that could be something that actually motivates him is always trying to you know figure things out and and I think that's what keeps them going too is always wanting to improve. I mean that is something that 
all Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal say consistently is they're always trying to get better. And I think they've actually been extremely good for each other because they all play differently. I mean, you know, the Nadal, the gritty, you know, baseliner. Djokovic, good baseliner as well, but just the more solid, steady, you know, really just not going to go away ever. And then Federer's got all the craft. And I think the fact that they all play differently, they've pushed each other. And I feel like they've actually helped each other play longer because they're always trying to figure each other out because they've played each other a million times. And they're always trying to figure out that slight edge between each other. And so they've warded off the mental fatigue that can be as difficult yeah, as the physical fatigue. Possibly, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not just Federer who's holding back the years. The Indian doubles player Rohan Bopanna, well, 39's young to him because he's 41. He's in both the doubles with fellow Indians, in the men's doubles with David Sharan and in the mixed with Sanya Mirza. He spoke to Anne-Marie Batson and started by explaining how he's still able to play top-level tennis. The best part of uh, what I'm doing today is that I enjoy the competition. Now this not so much happening about whether I'm making any changes in my game, but I'm enjoying where I'm at and, you know, finding ways to just compete and, uh, you know, play my best tennis. Uh, you know, I love to go and watch my matches, you know, wherever it's available. Uh, it, I think just by watching, you learn so much, uh, you know, so playing for such a long time, uh, I think I've grown tremendously as a player. Uh, not only uh, you know, learning from others, but you're learning from yourself with all the uh, different styles of, you know, tennis, which happens from all the different players around the globe that we keep watching, that I try and, you know, pick up maybe a few things here and there, which I could maybe try out on the court and, you know, it helps my game as well. What do you pick up from watching other players and what other players do you like to watch? I mean, I love watching these young uh, tennis players today. The way they are moving on court, obviously, I'm not trying to match that. But still, the way, uh, you know, they... I constantly... Because I have a tennis academy back home. So, I keep trying to see, you know, um, the way they move on the court. Of course, everybody hits a fantastic forehand, backhand serve. But it's the way they... That first one or two steps, they... You know, after uh, after the return, the way they are positioning themselves, which part of the court, uh, you know, all these small things, which uh, I think over the uh, years, I understood and learned to watch these things. Otherwise, you end up just yeah, watching them hit a winner or a great serve. But these are the small things, uh, you know, I have picked up to to really see. And also when I watch a lot of the doubles players, I mean, I... Uh, when the Bryans used to play, of course, I watched them a lot. I've played against them for so many years. There's so many things, great things you get, uh, uh, you know, to learn from them. You know, the way when it's a big uh, moment in the match or what kind of percentage play they play, what is the uh, most used kind of serve and, uh, you know, and how they bring in the partner as well to help, uh, you know, develop that. And I think, you know, these are the few things, uh, you know, I have learned, uh, you know, watching uh, a lot of the players, uh, you know, on tour. How much has the game changed for you, though? Because I guess, you know, you've seen the game speed up so much and different tennis players bring in a different style now to the court. The obvious thing is, uh, which has changed that, is that none of the singles players I see ever coming to the net so much. They always are so good from the back of the court. They're all great baseline players. So very rarely, even on a grass court, you see, you know, players coming to that net that often. Of course, the courts have gotten a little slower. So in terms of 
you know, the coach being slower, players have adapted, you know, staying at the back and, uh, you know, really doing so well from the back of the court. They did, I don't see them practicing as much, you know, in the net because they're hardly there. So are they not comfortable at that? So, you know, that's a big difference and big change when I was growing up because a lot of the players back then were only serving and walling. Courts were much faster. So it was, uh, you know, the obvious thing to do. Uh, so having said that, even when I started to learn, that's the way I learned to serve and volley and everything. But depends now on the surface because the surface is different. Sometimes I serve and stay back, which I've adapted in my you know game style, and uh, it does help in a few uh, few moments. Uh, but I think first initially when I was doing that, it was confusing because you're not your mind is deciding whether it. I should serve and only a servant stay back and then you're not focusing on the first and most important part, which is a serve, uh, you know. But overall, uh, you know, it's been definitely a fantastic learning experience watching different players from different era, you know, playing. And even in your game now as, as a doubles player, you talk about serving and staying at the back. That has been such a triumphant tactic for you. So much so, 400 wins now. How do you reflect on that in your career? Oh, it's been a long, long, you know, journey, but definitely, you know, very happy with getting my, you know, 400th win. It's been a successful, uh, you know, journey and career, and I'm really happy to have achieved that. I think it's, you know, credit for all, so many people around you, you know, who have worked with me together to make that happen. And even though I, tennis, we all look at it as an individual sport, but I think there is a lot more people involved who make that happen. And I think, uh, you know, especially uh, my coach, Scott Davidoff, he's been with me for a long, long time. Uh, you know, my physio, Gaurang Shukla, also has been working. These are the guys, you know, you never see them, which play a big role. Uh, you know, whether sometimes, um, you know, when you're going through your lows or whatever it may be, or even in your highs, to keep you on ground, making sure you do the right stuff day in, day out. They understand what the journey is as well. You know, as you get older, it's harder to recover. So having, uh, you know, full-time physio traveling with you, uh, my physio, Gaurang Shukla, uh, you know, I've been fortunate for him, uh, for me, actually, to have him travel with me week in, week out. Uh, you know, some weeks, even if I don't have a coach, I feel that's totally fine. But the physio makes such a big difference. And uh uh, actually, during this lockdown uh, last year in March, uh, after we went into you know the full lockdown, a um, couple of months uh, after the pandemic had started, right next to my house there was a yoga studio called uh, a specific yoga called the Iyengar Yoga. It's a very different kind of yoga. They use a lot of props like ro- ropes, blocks. It's not just the traditional uh, you know yoga and. Um, I've been having a lot of trouble on my knees. I have no cartilage uh, you know, on both my knees. It's completely worn out. So I thought, okay, let me give this a try because uh, and uh, I wanted to do something active, especially I could not you know, play tennis. Everything was you know, shut down. Uh, and this yoga studio was extremely close to my house. It was literally 10-minute walk uh, you know, for my house. Uh, so that actually helped in a very, very big way. I mean, doing this yoga, I was doing for 90 minutes, four times a week. Uh, You know, back end of 2019, I was struggling with my knees. Every day I used to have a painkiller 
constantly, uh, you know, and especially the weeks if the physio was not there, it used to be more painful. Trying to figure out what had to be done, and uh, I spoke to some doctors. Obviously, the doctor said the wear and tear over the 30 years uh, is what is causing it because there's no cartilage left. Uh, eventually, I have to do a surgery on you know both my knees. Uh, so. Anyway, since I was not playing, I said, okay, let me do this yoga. And I, I liked it so much. And the yoga helped tremendously, I mean, strengthen different parts of my body and took away the pressure going into the knees. So when I came back, uh, uh, you know, in August and started playing, and after that, when I started playing and I've been playing week in, week out, the biggest advantage is what different muscles have been strengthened and I'm not even taking a painkiller anymore which is incredible for me. And I really feel having that physio doing a different kind of fitness, what works for your body and understanding your body. I mean, some days I may tell my coach, okay, I need a couple of days off. I don't really need to practice because I know when I get on court, I'll still be striking the ball pretty well. It's not the question of, you know, just going out there and hitting, you know, ball after ball to understand, listen to your body, what is required and that I think has helped progress in my, you know, longevity in in my journey. What do you think about Roger Federer still playing in his fortieth year? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you know, to see somebody like that, uh, yeah, you know, playing singles at such a high level, uh, you know, we all take inspiration from him. I mean, you know, just the way so many times, uh, you know, I, I when I go and watch him, I'm amazed the fact that you know, how well he moves. That I think is just incredible. I mean, sometimes I'm sitting on court side and I'm not really watching the point. I'm just literally looking at his feet because, you know, uh, the way he, he anticipates that first step and then after that he's moving is just, just phenomenal. Talk us through a match day, your routine from getting up to post-match. So as soon as I get up, I love, to do some stretches in the morning, uh, you know, maybe or use the foam roller, just try to loosen up the body, get some blood flowing in the body. Uh, that's even before even going have a breakfast. And if I have an early match, uh, I try and eat about 90 minutes before, you know, my uh, warm up and everything. And once I'm warmed up, I like to keep my, uh, or sometimes I'm warming up as close to the match as possible. You know, because I don't want to take too much time in between unless, uh, you know, depending on the court availability. Uh, but having said that, uh, you know, so I do some light mobility stuff uh, before my warm up also, dynamic stretches uh, and then get on the court. And once, uh, uh, you know, I, I feel I hit maximum about 25 minutes to 30 minutes as a warm up, not, not too long. Uh, then after my match, like in Paris, for example, we had the ice bath. So I, I always go in there. So now it depends on tournament to tournament. Not many places, you know, have that option uh, with that ice bath. Uh, so, but I think that is the best recovery, having that, uh, you know, option. Otherwise, uh, I always get uh, either my physio or if my physio does not travel, somebody at the tournament, uh, they always have masseuse uh, available at the tournament where you can book and get a massage. And, uh, you know, that helps me. Um, and I, uh, more so this bubble also has kind of helped because I'm staying indoors, staying in the room, not uh, exploring too much and, uh, you know, saving all my energy as well. And your own story, if you were writing a letter to tennis, what would it say? 
a lot of pages it does require for sure to start with i don't think i you know can just uh, write a letter uh, and just finish it up uh, so easily uh, you know because there's so much of passion there from you know the sport what it has given me the love from the country you know wherever i've gone through the world whenever i played the amount even if you have one or two you know people from your own country supporting you there you know sometimes being away from your home country it motivates you it motivates you uh, you know so that's why playing with fans makes such a big difference uh, you know traveling the world and uh, you know i'm lucky enough to have a lot of guys who have come out and supported me through, you know pretty much every week on the tour so yeah there's plenty of things to write in that letter uh, you know i wish uh, you know one day i can uh, note it down and you know put it out there the voice of rohan bapana talking to anne marie batson and it's a good friend of bapana's an occasional doubles partner of his who is our next guest and that is Denis Shapovalov. He dashed the home fans' hopes by knocking out Andy Murray in the third round on Friday night. I, obviously, Jill Krabus, the story for the home fans and, and the British public was Murray's defeat. But I got the feeling that actually that short-changed Shapovalov. I thought Shapovalov was seriously impressive. I thought Shapovalov played exceptional, and I've seen him play quite a few times, and we, we all have now, and we've been very excited about the style of game that he plays, the energy that he brings to the court. Um, I think I was watching that whole match, and that first set in particular I think was important. Um, Shapovalov, you know, got up early, and then he had, you know, it was got a little bit tricky at the end of that first set, and Shapovalov came through with that first set against Murray, and then I think he just sort of rolled from there and he just lifted his level and I think Murray didn't necessarily play play his best I think he struggled with the movement in particular at the end of that match but I think a lot of it had to do with Shapovalov and I think what impressed me in particular about Shapovalov was like we always know he has those big shots like the big serve the big forehand he's very flashy plays with a lot of flair but sometimes um, you know sometimes he can go for too big of a shot and that's where some unforced errors come into play. But there were a few points uh, throughout that second and third set where there were longer points. And I was like, okay, this is where Murray can maybe like wear him down a bit, get a few unforced errors. I was super impressed with Shapovalov's patience in those particular points because he was patient and he waited, then he waited for the right moment to step up. And I thought that was one of the best matches I've seen him play in the, in the last year probably. Well, the Canadian has put the past 18 months to good use by refocusing on his approach to tennis and also balancing that with one of his other passions, music, both rapping and producing. Honestly, I just, I really enjoy, like, just doing different things, you know, in, in, in life, and, and that's where the music comes in, but also, like, like to do video editing, different different kind of things, you know, creative things. I've always I've always had passion for, for different things like this, so for sure, getting into music was uh, has been a lot of fun, and, and just writing and, and creating songs and stuff like that, it's been, uh, it's been pretty, just, just a lot of fun for me. The way that you play is so entertaining and people love watching you play, but also in terms of your music as well. Is that, is that the side of you, Dennis, that you're able to bring out on court, that entertainment side, that you're able to do that behind the mic in a studio, but also do that on court as well? Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely always say that, you know, tennis players are first... Firstly, we're entertainers. You know, people come to watch us. People come for, for a show to, to see us, uh, you know, put 
put some good tennis on, put some action on. So for sure, I do, I do feel like that is uh, part of us, you know. And I do like to to get pumped up with the crowd and and really get them involved. I feel like it's uh so much fun for me, and and obviously it's it's you know not our job, but it's uh part of part of the game. So it's uh it's it's just super awesome and uh like you said in the studio as well it's kind of cool to to connect with people through through music and uh in different ways when you do get pumped up when you're really fighting for it i guess the crowd really get behind you on that and on your tagline on your socials it just say stop don't stop don't fighting, stop fighting. Yeah, where does yeah. that where did that come from what was the inspiration yeah honestly it's been uh it's been a thing since i was really young since like 13 years old i think uh actually me and my coach we just went into it's like a bistro like restaurant you know and and we were grabbing food and it was actually like a, a leukemia donation thing you know so you would just like donate i think it was 10 20 dollars and they would give you like one of those wristbands with like the little like letters on them you know and and there was different ones you know like uh always fight this that you know and one of them was don't stop fighting and and you know obviously it was great to donate but mm-hmm. also you know we we took those wristbands and and we used it to to always remind ourselves you know, you know remind myself and, and my coach as well not not to only not stop fighting in tennis but in life and and in everything you know so it's uh, it's definitely been kind of like my motto growing up and and always you know just just rebounding from from tough moments tough losses and and always just continuing continuing to grow and to 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 fight and finally when can we expect the second album Cool. <laughs> Second album, Syndrome Dennis. I mean, it wasn't really an album. Like, I released like Come a little bit now. of an EP, you know, like a couple songs. Why is yeah. an album? But uh, I think uh, I don't know. I, I need some time, you know. I need yeah. I need some time, some work in the studio. Obviously, I'm still still improving, still getting better. But I got a couple guys, uh, you know. Friend that I'm friends with, you know, like Red Foo and, and Zeko that are helping me out and, and really want to get me in the studio. So, you know, I'm sure once once COVID is over and, and it's a lot more free, I'd definitely love to, to hit the studio with them and uh, and really, really get to work on that as well. Jill, he's a former junior champion here. Do you think we're ready to see the full Shapovalov now? Because his, his, his potential is obviously mm. unquestioned, but it takes a while for someone with that varied a game to really develop the confidence about what weapon to use when yeah do you think we're ready to see the whole range i think we saw a glimpse of it already against murray and i think you know that was what i was referring to is the fact that you know he got patient in those points and waited for the right moment and and i agree with you i think he's always had the talent he's always had all the shots but it is about you know playing that balancing act of when to use them at the right moment shot selection you can't emphasize enough it's how important it is during a match when you're out of position what shot do you hit being aware aware of where your opponent is in the court in those circumstances and i think you know you did get a glimpse of that against murray i think he played a very very smart match and um and i also think his serve um was very good against murray as well came up with some big serves which we dodgy in recent but i was just gonna say which we know sometimes can be a, a little bit on and off especially the second serve he can throw in a few double faults here and there but um, I thought his, his placement on the serve was great. And I thought he took extra time before his serve on big pressure moments to really just make sure he was mentally prepared to hit that big serve in that time. Do you think that Shapovalov and players like Musetti, who plays a bit like him, they are actually very important for the, the welfare of men's tennis in the next five, ten years, simply because they offer something different? They offer a flair that an awful lot of the really solid players don't necessarily have? 
You know, I think the contrast is important, right? I mean, if you have everyone playing like that, it might be like, whoa, okay, everyone's the, everyone's the same. But I think having, you know, Shapovalov, Musetti, a great example, Chris, of having those, you know, super energetic guys out there. Um, Curios obviously is another entertaining one. But I think that contrast we love so much. I mean, that's the, those are the matchups we love so much too, like a Federer and Nadal who are so different, a Borg McEnroe who are so different. Um, so I think having like um, a few of them in there is great. And I because I think those personalities are so important to have. Well, I look forward to seeing matches like Musetti against Alcaraz or Shapovalov against uh, Yannick Zinner yeah. in years to come. They'll be the big ones. They'll be the great sources of entertainment. And we're going to stick with the topic of entertainment because one of the big entertainers has been back on court this week. And as ever, the Australian Nick Kyrgios has energised the crowd with his tricks and his talent in both the singles and also the mixed doubles with Venus Williams. They had a wonderful uh, win in the first round of the mixed. Now, one man who also aimed to please the crowd is the former Roland Garros doubles champion, Luke Jensen, who I caught up with earlier in the week. I just see this game is in such a healthy spot. The facilities that all the Grand Slams and the major tournaments have really done such a great job putting roofs on, updating their facilities. Uh, the courts are in great shape. The fans have better access because now, because of the social media platforms, you can get right to the players and see how they're recovering and things. I think there's some serious um, not just tennis talents out there, but personalities. Bethany Maddox-Sands is must-see TV. I mean, whenever I, I get a chance just to watch her play, I enjoy it. So I think maybe not the Jensen brothers, because the Bryant brothers were a version of the Jensen brothers, but we had longer hair. And they won a lot more than we did. I mean, people said at the time, when you were uh, towards the end of your career, when the Jensens go, there'll be nothing holding doubles together. And then there were the Bryans. Now, the Bryans have now gone, and yet doubles seems to be reasonably robust. Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing, doubles, I feel, will always be around in some version because it's in our culture anyway. You grow up at the club, let's play singles, let's play doubles, let's play mixed. It is a family sport, so you'll play with your siblings or play with your parents and grandparents. So I, I really, we understand in our culture how to play it, how to move in it. In college in the United States, you do it. But I, I think at the pro level, you still need for this great value for not much money. You can get a grounds pass here at Wimbledon and see mixed doubles and doubles and singles. And we have juniors. We still need program. We still need matches on the court. So I think versions of now sing more singles players play doubles than ever before. Back when I played, there were double specialists. The whole doubles ranking got in. You couldn't use your singles ranking to get in. But uh, doubles is fun to watch. It's fast. How we promote it, is a discussion, but the uh, I believe the more personalities, how we relate to our fans who play doubles is, is very key. And we've seen plenty of singles players who've gone to doubles to improve aspects of their singles game, in particular their net game and their transition from the back of the court to the front. There's, to me, you look at the, the Jen Brady's, uh, the, the French Open champion who just won the singles and doubles at the French on the women's side, Krejcikova. Um, to me, that is the John McEnroe model. Stefan Edberg did it that way. Of course, the great, in my opinion, the greatest of all time tennis player, the most accomplished, is Martina Navratilova. Even though Margaret Court has more grand slams, Navratilova was the one that insisted singles, doubles, and mix, playing at the highest level. That's what I think we miss, having our marquee players play at least two events at the majors instead of just one. Um, but it does help. It helps your transition. And you know it's really helping? Coco Golf. 
She's playing doubles uh, with McNally here at Wimbledon. I think that's been a big change over the last two years that she's consistently committed to doubles, so her front game is so good. But with the men, while Wimbledon keeps on with this tradition of best of five sets in doubles all the way through, which many people like, although they had to abandon it for the early rounds this year because of the weather, uh, do you think that that's a realistic possibility? Or do you think that as long as, as long as it is best of five in the early rounds, you just cannot expect the top singles players to play? I will say Johnny Mack played singles and doubles at the height of his career, played with Peter Fleming, did very well here. It was important to him. He, he would rather play a doubles match than go out and uh, practice and work on something. To me, I love the tradition, but I would much rather see it go to two out of three sets. But in exchange, all the players have to commit to another discipline, a mixed doubles or a doubles. So you would actually insist that uh, in order to enter the singles, they have to enter the doubles or the mixed? I will always say the mission should be what's in the best interest of the game. And the best interest of the game is when you have your stars playing tennis, not taking a day off. And if it's two out of three sets in singles, you can play two out of three sets in doubles or even an eight-game pro set. Find a way to get them on the court. You see, the counter-argument to that would be that someone like Roger Federer and Andy Murray would say, hey, look, I'm coming back off knee surgery or a pin being put in my hip. If you want me to play best of five set Monday, Wednesday, Friday or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and then on my day off, I've got to come in and play a, a best of three men's or mixed doubles. Sorry, the tournament's not viable for well, me. Well, again, I would have grandfathered. We really approached this aggressively in the late 90s, early 2000s, if you remember, looking at, you know, grandfathering in the Agassiz and Sampras's, and even Roddick was already in the game, and saying, okay, let's say anyone coming into the game from 2000 on, your responsibility as a professional tennis player is to play singles and doubles. Now, if you are hurt, or you have a pre-existing situation, you don't have to play both. You can pick one. But you have to commit that professional tennis is singles and doubles. And we have a combined ranking in that. So instead of the number one singles player in the world, we have the number one tennis player in the world. And if you started then, you would have you would have captured a young Roger Federer. You would have captured uh, Djokovic and a Nadal. And it would have been so interesting how their careers would have moved. But again, you would have to downshift from best of five sets to two out of three sets in the singles. So you think that's still an argument for the singles because so, uh, all four majors are still doing best of five? Best of five sits and the French doesn't play a tiebreaker in the fifth. And we play here at Wimbledon tiebreaker at 12 all in the fifth. It's always gonna be a discussion point, but I'll always go back to how we evolve as a sport and how, we're, we, how we remain relevant globally is we have to continue to improve our product. And the theme has to be what is in the best interest of the game of tennis moving forward? How we can get more interest and eyeballs to watch? And to me, I was blessed to have people like McEnroe, Connors, Lendl, Borg, Navratilova, Everett, Tracy Austin as role models how to do it. How to get on the court and have fun, compete, entertain like Nastasi. But surely you couldn't have better role models than Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. Uh, but, but I would say when I see today's landscape, Back when I grew up, there were three channels to look at. There was CBS, ABC, and NBC. We didn't have cable. We didn't have social media. Kids today, and I, I work with all types of juniors around the United States, 
they don't watch tennis. They may peek in and they like Djokovic or they like Federer, or they like Serena, but they don't watch tournaments and they don't watch matches. That concerns me. Okay, so is the solution someone like uh, a Shapovalov or a Musetti who plays sort of uh, interesting, different, slightly old-fashioned tennis in the in the Federer model, or is the solution in the likes of Kyrgios or Bublik who will do something weird like asking a spectator where where he should serve, or or the underarm serves, or whatever else Bublik and Kyrgios do? Well. The- there's a place for everybody and there is a place for the Jensen brothers and I think there's a place for everybody in this game. We love personalities. I truly believe we have to do a better job of marketing. When I get on my phone, I get all these ads from Amazon and, and all these other places that want to sell me things. Delta Airlines wants to sell me the trip to Cancun and things. I want to know when my players are on the practice court because I want to be able to watch them practice and I want to watch them when they play their matches. But it's hard in our format because if you're third on, it's hard for me to wrap my day around my favorite player playing third on after 11 o'clock. So if I get notifications, hey, your favorite player, Kyrgios, is about to warm up on whatever, Orangi 5, and you get a chance to watch his live stream here. I'm going to lock in on this. Yesterday, yesterday, I am on Instagram. And I'm Instagram live with a player from Germany. I don't know why I tapped. I just thought it was so interesting. This girl's 700 and something in the world. And she was traveling from 5 a.m. somewhere in Germany to Stuttgart to play a pro event. And she put her phone up. And she's Instagram live taking questions. And I'm like, all these people are on All she was doing was driving on the Autobahn, and I found it so interesting. So, you know, how are you playing? What are you working on? You know, what are your goals? Like, all these interesting things. The closer we can draw our fans, especially our younger fans, through technology to our stars, to our Kyrgioses, and and to our uh, superstars, Coco Goff and McNally's, and all these great players coming through the draw through technology, I think that's our future. So if you were asked to coach Kyrgios or coach Bublik, how do you make a great tennis player without losing the great entertainer? Yeah, I I think the first thing is, what are their goals? Personally, what are your goals? Do, Do you truly want to win Wimbledon? Do you want to be number one in the world? Well, if you do, my my version of this is that we need to rein it in a little bit. I mean, I love the tweeners and the underhand serves and, and all that stuff. But to do it on break point down is a really interesting shot selection. Uh, Ikurios did it at the Australian Open this year. He was playing team, and he was, he was up two sets to one, and it's four all. He's got a game point to go up 5-4 in the fourth, and he does a first volley tweener, misses it, ends up losing the game. I don't know if that's the right shot. I I think how you sit down with those individuals, but in the end, the coach, the parents, the fan, we can only support our player to 50%. We love them. We want the best for them, but they have to meet that same goal and intensity, the other 50%. If Nick, what is he only played six matches in the last two seasons leading into Wimbledon, that's really hard to be relevant. What I really worry about in our game is our Osaka's our curiosis, our real superstars don't play. Andrescu, they don't play. They'll come in, they'll dip in a little bit, and then they've made so much money, they go off and they train, and they they don't play week in, week out. I mean, Navratilova and Everett, they play, they're, 
they played like what 80 times that's great for the sport and and when you don't have your best players playing outside of every once in a while i think that hurts the 250s and the 500s and the thousands your enthusiasm is wonderful how can we harness your enthusiasm to make tennis just that much more attractive well to me you I am so uh, grateful for the friendships that I have in, in tennis, and one of the relationships that I have is with you. And I've always respected how you have like, written the songs and, and told the stories of what's going on in this sport. And I just think we have so many talents that have loved the history of the game, love telling the story of what goes on at Wimbledon, what goes on during the, during the year and things like that. I just think we keep working hard and we just keep on telling the young players that there's there are special places uh, out here and Wimbledon is one of them. I, I just was so just amazed when I stepped up to Wimbledon this year and every day I get goosebumps. It doesn't change. This is my 40th Wimbledon experience in 1981. I came here not as a fan. I was It was after Wimbledon that year. It was the You Cannot Be Serious McEnroe year. He had won Wimbledon in singles that year. But I was to travel around playing some tournaments as a 15 year old and I'd never been to Wimbledon and walking around the grounds and it was like I wanted to get here. What was it going to take for me to get here? So Thank you so much for saying that. I'm just blessed to be part of this game. The irrepressible Luke Jensen and Jill Kravis. Isn't it wonderful to hear that enthusiasm? Shouldn't we bottle that and give it to everyone involved in tennis? Yes, I love Luke. I mean, he's he's just so much fun to talk to. I mean, you could wake up and feel just so tired and drowsy and you run into Luke and you're just like, oh my God, my day just got better. But yeah, he brings so much energy. I remember watching him on the court with his brother Murphy and both of them just so energetic. And he, I mean, I don't think he's lost an ounce of that energy at all. And I've gotten the pleasure of working with him, which has been fantastic. But um, yeah, I think he, it's great to see that a lot of these players that we just spoke about are bringing that energy to the court as well. I think it's awesome. He talked there about the possibility of trading, reducing best of five to best of three in the men's singles in return for all the leading players agreeing to play either men's doubles or mixed doubles. Do you think there's any viability in that? You know that I mean that's an interesting concept for him to come up with. I mean that that's definitely something maybe to think about and and consider. Um, on the one hand, I feel like you can't force players to play if they don't really want to play. I mean, some people just like singles better than doubles. Um, but on the other hand, I, I mean, from my own experience, I have to say doubles significantly helped me without a doubt in my singles game, whether it was from, you know, the accuracy of my returns to understanding the angles of the court to not being afraid as much to transition forward into the net and feeling more comfortable in the net, quicker reflexes. So for me, all those aspects help my ga singles game tremendously. So I can completely see the argument and understand it um, but in the end it's I guess it's the player's choice I think you kind of have to respect that as well. Jill Kravis going into week two anything in particular you're looking forward to? Uh, well, there are always, whenever I come into a Grand Slam, I'm always looking forward to who's going to break into the week two for their first time, maybe. And also what we talked about earlier, you know, those those locals that we want to see, Raducanu in particular, um, who already made it into week two. Um, exciting to see how far she can go. And and just, um, you know, who the crowd gets behind. I mean, a lot of times they, they, they want to go for the favorites, but there's so many, you know, of the fans that want to go for the underdogs. So whoever those underdogs and get into the second second week. I'm always looking forward to see how they can handle that atmosphere, handle that moment. And we have the last ever Manic Monday when all round of 16 matches in men's and women's singles are played in the same day.
Thanks once again to Jill Krabus and indeed to all of our guests. I'm Chris Bowers. Thank you for being with us on the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. I'll be back next week as we round up events here at the third Grand Slam of the year. For now, though, enjoy the tennis. <laughs>